dreamers. They tell you we are dreamers. The true dreamers are those who think the true dreamers are those who think things can go on indefinitely the way they are. Welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. Andy here. And we are here with friend of the show, Natasha Leonard. She is a columnist at The Intercept, as well as an author, including of the book Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. Uh, Welcome to the show, Tosh. Thanks for joining us again. Hey, so nice to be here. Hell yeah. So as you know, uh, we have gathered here today to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of a little moment in time called Occupy Wall Street, which was a little local occupation, a little direct action, if you will, that uh, quickly spread around the country and even the world to revive a kind of class struggle discourse that had long been dead, at least in this country. Um, Now, it would be easy to freak out about how old this makes us feel, uh, but I promise I haven't done that at all today. Uh, But it it is nice on some level to look back, I think, on everything that's happened in the last 10 years of struggle and think about what it means um, and think back on what, if anything, we've achieved as a movement and where we're going. And, you know, maybe in another 10 years, we'll do it again and we will have maybe gotten somewhere new. Yeah, no, totally. It's a funny thing when it's like, oh, 10 years, we must mark because that is a like reasonable, discreet amount of time. Um, But I think it is actually useful to be like, oh, you know, what do we have weird, like loving and or regretful nostalgia about? What do we think we've done since? Have we done anything since? Um, And also just like a way of reconnecting with comrades who we found in that space and thinking of how we're still close or less close and things around that. I think it's like, you know, if there's an anniversary, why not take advantage of it for some reflection and thought? Yeah, I feel like I'm not always very good at that. And maybe a lot of leftists are the same way. Like, as soon as something's done, you're like, all right, I got to move on to the next thing. What have I done lately? But uh, it's always good to pause and think about shit. Why not? (laughs) So, yeah, I guess we were all around. We were all involved in Occupy Wall Street. So maybe let's start by going around and get everybody's general impressions or experiences of the the Occupy thing, the Occupy phenomenon. I don't know if I could call it a movement or a moment or an action or what, but we'll get into that later. I think Andy should start. (laughs) Well, sure. Um, I actually wasn't around for like the bulk of Occupy because I went to Spain to try to write about the Indignados movement because they were supposed to have a, uh, this is like a a take the square movement kind of thing in Spain, mainly in Barcelona and Madrid. Uh, And they're supposed to have like another round of occupation in mid-September. So I planned to be there in September uh, and, you know, participate in it and write about it. And it just didn't happen. It was like all of the post-occupy, reoccupy things. It just fizzled out. The moment had passed. The police knew what was coming or whatever. And I knew that uh, there was the call to occupy Wall Street. And I'd actually been to one of the planning meetings for it in Thompson Square Park and Graeber and a lot of the occupy people who uh, would become really central to the early days of it were there. 
And uh, my favorite story from that meeting is is the first person who talked talked for like a very cringily long amount of time about the Occupy Kitchen and that they were going to have uh, peanut butter for sandwiches, uh, but also they had to have something that wasn't peanut butter for people with peanut allergies. And he and this was like one of the first people to talk at this meeting is before they decided what they were going to do, where they're going to camp, how they're going to camp, if they're going to camp, all this stuff. And this guy's just talking about peanut butter for a really long period of time. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a waste of time. This is not going to work. But then a few minutes after that, in the more general discussion part of the meeting, the peanut butter guy gets up and he says, you know, I was thinking about a good slogan for the movement. I thought because I read a statistic that 1% of the people own like 70% of the wealth. So I thought we could say we're the 99%. We'd have signs that say that and teachers that say that. And people all over the world will identify as 99%. And he gave like a pretty like <laughs> good speech selling that. And I was like, hey, damn, that's actually kind of a good idea. But yeah, I mostly m- walked away from the meeting thinking it would not work out. And then I'm in Spain a month later. It's still going on. And then the person I'm with is like, hey, I just got a text that uh, 700 people have been arrested on the, the road of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I was like, oh, that cannot be true. How, how is that possible? <laughs> so I think Occupy is um, a really good example of one of these things that it really shouldn't have worked but it kind of needed to, you know, it wasn't like the planning in my view that made it work. It was just like the moment called for it. And we should always be kind of open to seeing what, uh, what, what could just happen as a, as a result of the, the historical necessity of the moment. Yeah, no, it's because I was at a number of those sort of uh, August uh, and like high summer leading up to pre meetings. And I think felt, um, you know, felt that it was like interesting and compelling that, you know, there were people who were in those meetings who'd also been very, very inspired by that first wave of like square movement movements in Spain and Syntagma in, in Greece and talking about direct democracy. And I was like, okay, this sounds interesting. But again, these meetings are interminable and a lot of peanut butter chat. Um, but um you know, it was, uh, and then indeed on the very first kind of inaugurating day of of Occupy, which was September 17th, um, you know, there was a march, not unlike a lot of marches that, that anyone who'd been involved in um, anti-capitalist or anti-war activism had seen, just, you know, a march. Um, but there was a plan to kind of set up space somewhere, hold space somewhere. Um, Zuccotti Park, the final destination, was not indeed the chosen. I think it was like third uh, choice in, in uh, you know, various strategy planning meetings. Um, but, you know, I remember kind of as night fell and we'd had various break off groups and discussions, I remember thinking like, this is, this is, what is, like, who, who cares? <laughs> um, this seems like a good experiment. But yeah, being a little... Um, pessimistic as can be my want and then yeah and it actually for me even though I was um was in New York at the time and was there it wasn't in in fact until that big um bridge arrest where I was present that then seemed to kind of echo and get attention around the country and I was also um writing for the New York Times at the time um so uh and was worried about my visa so I was like oh an arrest while being a journalist and worried about my visa in the U.S. Um, who knows where this will go? Um, and then it kind of escalated into something that seemed more of a kind of, you know, capitally event than I'd expected. And I, I do think I should try and remember that more when I'm 
skeptical about the shape of certain movement politics and meeting spaces and um, things that I, I maybe in my, yes, as we were saying, Jamie, in our grand old age could find ourselves being uh, not as open to as, as actually the Occupy moment was a good reminder of, of possibilities when people are both, yes, uh, in a position of uh, the kind of conditions materially demanding or necessitating it, but also to not foreclose the fact that there, even if things didn't work out as planned, quote unquote, there had been extensive planning meetings and thinking and, and strategizing about what kind of action this was going to be, that it wasn't a kind of protest appealing uh, directly through demands and petitions to a certain ruling order, that it was going to engage in direct democracy, that it was going to take seriously kind of uh, forms of life in a given space, even if it played out in various unexpected ways. Um, it wasn't some, uh, you know, it, it, it took advantage perhaps of uh, conditions and a certain aperture, but it definitely was not without planning. It certainly wasn't that um, more simplified narrative of, uh, you know, Adbusters magazine says Occupy Wall Street, September 17th, everyone turns up, occupies right near Wall Street. Um, and I think that's worth keeping in mind. And, you know, hats off to the people that did much more of the organizing, um, you know, before uh, September. I was sort of present and uh, meeting people and talking to people and had been part of you know, certain certain activist and, and anarchist spaces before that. I think Andy and I, you met, you and I met like a year before that. Um, but I, uh, you know, wasn't organizing those general assemblies in Tompkins Square Park. I wasn't um, as proactive in that as some other comrades were and, and kind of all hats off to them to helping forge open that aperture, um, which was perhaps necessary, but insufficient for the whole thing to kick off. Yeah, word. Uh, that's a good way of putting it, man. Like I'm gonna make myself sound like a a young fool, but uh, when Occupy, I mean, I'm not a young fool anymore. I'm ten years older than I was when I was a young fool. But like, I did not know anything about anything when Occupy first popped off. Um, I had been getting into leftist politics through Sean a little bit. We'd been dating for a very short period of time. So when that happened, I thought it was pretty exciting. I was like, oh, wow, it's happening. <laughs> like, I just found out about it and it's happening. Uh, like, it, it was really the first time I was involved in anything that even approached uh, direct action. So that was pretty exciting for me. And I learned a lot from it. Um, it also felt pretty accessible and welcoming, even though, you know, there were times that I couldn't really hear what was going on during the mic checks and everyone was using the people's mic, you know, it was kind of hard to follow, but I, I got a sense that there was really no barrier to entry, uh, unlike other, shall we say, more politically advanced spaces I'd been recently uh, in through Sean. Um, like it was really, it was really a conjunctural moment, I think for me and for the world in general, like we were just in this full neoliberalism. Everyone was excited about Obama and then immediately disappointed in Obama. 
I mean, all the all the young fools, at least. <laughs> I can't speak for everyone. All the young fools. Um, yeah. But no, I do. Yeah. And like, I think that was what was, um, you know, exciting about it, but then obviously made tensions and um, perhaps, you know, in that specific moment, overcomable, but like was interesting to see play out and tease out that like people did come it come from it from from a different set of presumptions and understandings but there was a um you know the the shared ethos i think was super well captured by um uh this this slogan that was on a, a number of signs at the time i don't i have no idea who first etched this on their piece of cardboard but then it, it, you know it ended up being uh the title of the great malcolm harris's book of shit is fucked up and bullshit yeah. And that was um, this kind of unifying uh, call. And yes, and given that that is indeed um, a kind of a, a diagnosis without a necessary direction, um, there were a lot of different kind of tendencies and, um, you know, different people com coming from different sets of understanding, turning up at the park and, and indeed playing different roles. Um, there is something I sort of always feel like I need to admit, because obviously like I was, I was there and I was in a lot of the big actions and I, I would be around the park pretty often. And I was also writing about it. Um, first, you know, doing the objectivity game of the New York Times, but then just as a, an opinion writer and fully claiming support for the, the moment and, and the actions. Um, but, you know, I wasn't doing the nitty gritty of like the day to day, the peanut butter, which, you know, ended up playing a major role in its um, sustainability for as the short period, but influential period. It was sustainable because it was this kind of very like ephemeral, ephemeral, but site based um, intervention. And there was a lot going on outside the park, like a lot of discussions, group meetings, decision making, thinking that was not all situated in, you know, the Sukot, Sukoti Park General Assembly. And it's not like every single person who identified with and had solidarity with Occupy Wall Street, even just in New York, was like living at the park. It would have been a much smaller, um, you know, constellation had that been true. Um, but, you know, I do, I do feel kind of in retrospect, even if there might have been things I found irritating or um silly or maybe um not i don't know expansive enough it's hard to put words to of the kind of uh, attention paid to the minutiae of the space that that i you know sometimes would step away from and not get super involved in kind of hats off to the people that kept that going that sort of also enabled there to be um experimentation and action and uh, sort of a militancy around it that had the park not been maintained for the extent of time it was would have maybe not been possible. Um, and so, yeah, I, I might have, I might look back on it with a bit of guilt of being um, the kind of theoretical anarchist cadre that was like, go hard or go home. And this meeting has gone on too long. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's why, you know, I was also 10 years younger, in my early twenties and we live and learn. Absolutely. And you were doing media. Like, I guess I should say there's a personal story here for our guest. Uh, people might not know, uh, but Tosh was one of a number of journalists to lose their jobs as a result of 
I don't even want to say participation necessarily, just like support, not being neutral in Occupy. Um, so yeah, York- it would go a little far to call what I had at the new, I mean, the far right would like to say that I had a job because then that implicates the New York Times in Occupy and they are indeed not implicated in support for Occupy. I was a stringer, which for those not in journalist world jargon just means like the most um, precarious of freelancers as in, oh, you're here. Um, We can pay you a day rate report back, Um, you know, no contract, no support, nothing like that. Well, but I'd been doing some that's a lot of journalism nowadays, though. I mean, it's most of it. And it's especially precarious version. Um, And so I um, yes, but uh, there were in in some of the early days of Occupy, I was sending reports back and writing stuff for The New York Times um, and including writing about being arrested on the bridge and what happened on that day in Brooklyn Bridge. Um, when 700 people were arrested, myself included. Um, And then what happened was um, there was a public debate held at the um, Blue Stockings bookstore, which is a radical feminist bookstore on the Lower East Side. Um, And it was a a debate between the kind of more uh, anarchist lens of uh, people approaching Occupy and the more kind of traditional socialist um, organized state, organized communist side of things. And this it was, was Jacobin, right? Jacobin hosted the wow. debate. And it was the writer. Can you, can you imagine them doing that now? Well, I think they probably had their, their preference of the side that would win, which was the, win the debate, which was um, Doug Henwood and Jody Dean versus um, Malcolm Harris, who I've already mentioned and myself. I was also having a really, really bad day and was terribly, terribly drunk. So I hate <laughs> really bringing up this event. But oh, sorry. It was, oh, no, 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 no. Why would you know? I'm just saying I mean it more of a, as a joke. Um, but it did end up being quite, quite an important one for me because the video was public and it wasn't a private thing at all. But um, Breitbart.com, uh, which is obviously a um, you know far right organ, found the video, pretended it was some sort of expose of the New York Times being behind Occupy Wall Street. And after that, it was clear I could no longer keep, you know, freelancing for the Times and pretending to support this this kind of performed um, and very kind of uh, ill-informed notion of objectivity. So after that, I just started writing for, um, you know, left-leaning outlets and then, you know, Ever since, if I ever write for the Times, it's definitely in the opinion section. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then I was also just just covering covering the the various kind of waves of of the movement slash moment. Um, you know, different uh, moments when the police would try and uh, evict the park, major marches, uh, different kind of cultural offshoots that related to it, and then. Um, yeah. So, so it was, it was for me, it was like, that was a good shift. I don't have to pretend to be uh, objective anymore. Um, and then, and then there was a movie made <laughs> that was uh, shown at the Republican national convention, I think the following year or the year after called Occupy Unmasked, um, which again, tried to posit that um, writers like me were uh, proof that, that the big institutions like the New York Times were behind Occupy. It was all the Times and Soros. And the director of that movie was, uh, you know, 
uh, none other than good old Steve Bannon. Oh so my God. Into, and, you know, all these funny uh, intersecting things that you, you know, at the time I was like, who's this weirdo making this weird film? And then some years later, you're like, oh, fucking hell, Steve mm. Bannon. That's mm. fucking hilarious. Mm-hmm. But like, I really do think this is important. I mean, not just for you and your career, but in general, I feel like it was a time when this shift was happening and more and more people were questioning the value of objectivity in journalism or even the possibility of it. And I know I was inspired by that. I mean, I was a fucking lady blogger still at the time, but I was inspired by that certainly when I finally decided to take that jump and write about politics because I had very little interest in being objective. Yeah. And I think it was, a you know, like uh, from the media side aside, it was um, this interesting moment, you know, talking about the guy who um, and it's obviously uh, often credited to David Graeber, but who knows where the phrase really came from. We are the 99 percent um, from the peanut butter guy. And you know, <laughs> fixing some history on the pod. Um, but the um, yeah. And like, you know, even though it, it there's a certain. There are a lot of class analyses that are lacking from that slogan, at least what that opened up, which maybe had been. Um, not available to a lot of people who are engaging in it was this sense of like, no, there is a, there is a class antagonism here. And there is a like, which side of your, are you on? Even if the side, the, the side we were on was, was messy and, and in many ways inchoate. Um, yeah. I think it was this for a lot of people, especially young people who had maybe been excited by Obama and hope and whatnot, um, a, a, a kind of coming into understanding of, uh, what it might even mean to to have to choose a side and for it to be an essentially an inherently anti- antagonistic tension. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, class consciousness is still having a lot of trouble in this country. And I think uh, class struggle in and of itself is not ever going to be enough. Like I've been reading Lenin, State and Rev. It's more, one of his more anarchisty texts, I think. Um, but he's like, yeah, just doing the class struggle, is it enough to make you a Marxist or a communist? Like you need to do it as a means to an end in order to end class society. Because if you get stuck on that first step, class struggle could mean like, oh, you're going to fucking vote for Elizabeth Warren. You know, you're going to like make the SEC better or whatever. And I do think there was a little bit of that in Occupy all mixed around like the people who just want better regulations on Wall Street. But like for the most part, I mean, I'm biased because that's who I was hanging out with. But everyone I knew who was involved with it was an anarchist or a communist and wanted to dismantle capitalism. And at the time I was like, fuck, yeah, we have to do that. So now what I hear lives looking back on it like, oh, yeah, it really helped get out the message of economic inequality. And then it led to the Bernie campaign and we didn't win this time, but maybe we will next time. I like kind of want to shoot myself. But uh, I guess that's a long winded way of answering. Like, what are these people missing from Occupy's legacy? Right. And I think that's one of those things. Like, I think there is a temptation to be like, oh, the the line that's now the kind of like like popular consensus line of like, you know, good on Occupy, it changed the conversation. Um, you know, there is, for better or worse, and in many ways lacking, let's say, um, a, a deep truth to that, right? It's like so much of what 
felt exciting about Occupy was not indeed that. We weren't all sitting around, although there were contingents that were just uh, picking over the Glass-Steagall Act. We were, um, you know, engaged in, in politics as, um, you know, a form of life and, uh, you know, living in the kind of the prefigurative politics that, that the parks um, engendered and indeed demanded. Um, and that was what was exciting about it in many ways, um, even if that creates its own, um, you know, vulnerabilities in the conditions we live in. For example, vulnerabilities when the police clear out the park that was the kind of crux of the space. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it's this fine balance now, 10 years on to be like, look, let's be real. The discursive victory was won by more of a kind of social democrat dsa people that went into the bernie campaign like they did kind of win the day in terms of how this thing is remembered um in many ways uh, or at least the kind of um you know if you read about if you read a lot of the reflections that and there's been a number in the press um around this 10 year anniversary, a lot of them do just focus on that. And it is only discursive and it is about how these things um, fed into smoothly or not um, legislative agendas, the Bernie campaign, um, you know, the rise of the DSA um, and then, you know, AOC, Elan Omar and DSA candidates. Um, and that's just sort of historically what has happened. But that doesn't mean we should then give up uh, insisting on remembering why actually I think this thing kicked off and was exciting in a way that just a set of committed youngins going around campaigning on, um, you know, anti-inequality, um, you know, anti-billionaire policies would have done. There was a, a really important aspect of it that was about how we like live our lives and do our politics without presuming representation um, and appealing to a greater power, even though, of course, that made it much more vulnerable. So it's not really a surprise, given the way narratives get to work and histories get to be told, that um, the, the thing with more lasting power, um, for example, how things have played out legislatively since and who gets to represent um, versions of these ideas, then people are like, okay, so thank Occupy for that. Um, but, you know, a sine non of Occupy was its radical tendencies, its militant tendencies. It's, um, you know, this was always a debate, but I would say for the most part, most, and again, I'm with you, Jamie, like everyone I knew was like, no, we're not going to make specific demands on existing politicians. We're going to create a world that we a world of politics and lived politics that we think are compelling and also create a space of pressure, discomfort, you know, intervention in the kind of, you know, standard patina of the city. And, and that was genuinely a drive and a, and a really important and passionate one that I wouldn't, I really wouldn't want to be lost. Cause I think of sometimes like, I don't know, like 22 year olds now who are getting politicized through the DSA and, um, DSA candidate campaigns um, and meetings around that, which obviously involve content and talking about class struggle and ownership of the means of production and um, racial capitalism and uh, the kind of 
gendering of capitalist forms um, and things like that. Like I'm not saying those those ideas get lost entirely, but something about the kind of forms of challenging them. If you're only allowing your political horizon to go through, oh, what if we just got like the best candidates possible? Um, yeah, I just sort of wouldn't want wouldn't wouldn't want the youngs to um, not also experience that that kind of lived, exciting and mutually dependent politics um, that aren't just about kind of campaigning and uh, our best possible options within the now. I want to chime in with a quote from one of my favorite pieces of writing about Occupy, which is the invisible committees to our friends. Um, they Ooh. say the true content of Occupy Wall Street was not the demand tacked onto the movement a posteriori, like a post-it stuck on a hippopotamus for better Ooh. wages, decent housing, or a more generous social security, but discussed with the life we're forced to live. Discuss with a life in which we're all alone, alone facing the necessity for each one to make a living, house oneself, feed oneself, realize one's potential, buy oneself. The life in common that was attempted in Zuccotti Park, in tents, in cold, in the rain, surrounded by police in the dreariest of Manhattan squares, was definitely not a full rollout of the Vita Nova. It was just the point where the sadness of metropolitan existence began to be flagrant. It's beautiful. Oh. Yeah, I like that. Um, Snaps to that one. Yeah, and you know, I think also when we're recalling necessarily so and, and like reinstating in the narrative that might have been lost, um, those aspects of, of lived politics and shared disgust that could then um, find find forms of like mutual togetherness and fighting against it through that as opposed to seeking representation um, is to also think that like, and I'm sure there were far more people aware of this at the time, but just not getting as much of a voice in the Occupy movement. Um, but thinking about like kind of aspects of, uh, you know, indigenous struggle and the black radical tradition and um, modes of, of we take care of us mutual aid that far predated that, um, far predated Occupy, um, you know, this was not rein this was not reinventing the wheel, even if some of those legacies did not directly causally inform a lot of Occupy's organizing. Um, if I'm gonna say, hey, something's really lost if we don't talk about those more militant and lived elements and non-representative elements, um, it was also a kind of flaw, I would say, of Occupy at the time to not be more cognizant of the different legacies that had done similar experimentation in uh, mutual lived resistance uh, before us. And I know that was like a failure on my part. Um, and I know I wasn't alone in that. Maybe this is taking us a little bit far afield, but I do like to do that sometimes. Um, do you want to talk about like anarchism a little bit and like the theory of how we get from here to a stateless, classless society um, using anarchist politics and tactics, not limited to, but including occupations, which I often hear kind of referenced in the same breath as um, strikes and blockades and even riots by some of our revolutionary comrades. 
Um, sure. I mean, I can I can start, but I bet Andy has has even better stuff to say than I do. I would say, you know, obviously, so much part of um, Occupy was was not about just just ends, right? It was like, oh no, the means to which we get to the ends have to reflect the politics we want to live, and that is essentially an anarchist principle. The means being direct democracy, the means being horizontalist. The means being like, oh no, no, we we li- we will live differently, and that the the, the means. Um, it's not about justifying the ends; it's the means being entailed in any ends. Um, and by the same token, I would say that um, you know a, a distrust in representative democracy undergirded so much thinking, pre-thinking around Occupy in those planning meetings. And the reason it kind of had any staying power at all, as opposed to kind of handing that um, that power over to a representative, um, even the best possible imagined representative at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, this this it happens a lot. And I'm not that interested in policing terms because obviously language changes through use, but it's worth kind of doing a check on how terms are used when you lose something useful, when the meaning of a term changes. And the the term that comes to mind based on your question, Jamie, is is that of direct action. And for example, um, just recently, uh, when a number of uh, the kind of left flank of the Democratic Party staged a an occupation or, or like a sit-in in front of Capitol Hill against the end of the eviction moratorium. Yes, these people were putting their bodies on the line. Yes, it was a bold and crucial action. Um, by the same token, it was phrased as direct action. It was described as, I saw a lot of tweets saying, direct, hashtag direct action gets the goods. And I'm like, no, this was like a powerful protest but it wasn't actually direct action. It was an action that then was like, hey, we appeal to this given representative form. Direct action was taking space and living within it. Uh, Direct action is a strike. Direct action is also looting. Um, And I think it's worth not letting that term get completely garbled and just saying anything that seems like it's direct and it's action is therefore direct action yeah see anarchists still have rules about what words mean especially the words direct action and mutual aid which i think has been equally abused in uh in recent years yeah mutual aid's an interesting one because again like that same phrase of like we take care of us which was such a kind of uh aspect of, of life in the occupied parks um has also been been repeated necessarily so i mean it always deserves repeating uh during the pandemic and we saw a huge upsurge in uh organization and groups who you know use the term mutual aid um and of course uh, and you know i've been involved in was involved in groups like that that you know i would say were necessary did crucial work but were not mutual aid they were and that also deals with the you know relates to the constraints of the pandemic but you know, the, the big mutual aid groups that were super crucially because the state was not going to do it and, and no other, you know, authority was going to do it, were ensuring people who couldn't leave their homes, um, you know, who couldn't afford to have grocery delivery were 
bought their groceries and uh, were kind of sustained through that. Um, it's hard to think of that as mutual aid, given that like there was no mutuality there really. Um, there was no organizing necessarily with the people that are were the recipients of these grocery deliveries. And that wasn't really the kind of in, in, <laughs> intention of, of thinking about mutual aid as a site of um, organizing and uh, mutual mutual uh, engagement. But that's also to do with, you know, the pandemic, you couldn't go near people. So you had to sort of drop something off and, and keep going. Um, I'm also nervous of the, um, I don't want to then therefore say, therefore it wasn't mutual aid, therefore that was bullshit. Of course it wasn't, but it wasn't this kind of liberatory transformative space. It was a necessary bandage over a bullet wound. But without that kind of ability to organize further and speak to each other's needs and you know, develop these, these networks into community networks, abolitionist networks, and be able to kind of be in real conversation with the people that were in need of help and that were being helped through these things. There was a certain unsustainability of it. Um, and so, yeah, I feel actually pretty ambivalent about uh, the use of mutual aid uh, in that, in, in the last year, because as a term, because you're right, it has, you know, without, without reckoning with that difference between mutual aid and charity, we lose the ability to use mutual aid as a term that, that is useful and like can be helpfully weaponized and is something we want to enact. We keep talking around it, uh, but it, in some of your pieces, you're careful to differentiate between the idea of a moment and a movement, Occupy being the former, as it was always, everyone always knew it was going to be ephemeral. So what's the difference, do you think, and what's the utility of a moment like this um, as opposed to a movement whose goal is to last a long time and build these lasting institutions that can carry things over from one cycle of struggle to the next? And maybe what's the relationship between the two? Yeah, it's a good question. And again, I'm going to give like a kind of ambivalent response. And like, I also like, I'm sure I like as often I'm like, I bet Andy has something good to say. Um, but I think that, um, you know, interestingly, too, is that like at the time, like nine, 10 years ago, I would have been like, it's a moment. And also I would have been like, it's a constellation. Um, and I was reading like lots of Deleuze and like, you know, uh, it's being like, it's, it's, it's a constellation. It's a configuration. Um, and now I'm a little bit more chill with the lexicon, like, especially when you're writing and you have to use lots of terms, but why it's useful to maybe distinguish it from uh, a kind of moment like Occupy and its ephemerality and its um, site necessitated uh, continuance compared to like a movement is almost just, a, it's a historically useful distinction because there was something that Occupy was doing that did seek to differentiate itself from like building a political movement that, you know, can, as a point of contingent history has tended to mean okay, here's how we build our demands, here's how we represent them, here's how we uh, apply this movement to the given 
political structures. I'm not particularly offended if people are like the Occupy movement, but I think it's, um, you know, both in terms of, of celebrating what Occupy was, but also as kind of a useful site of critiquing what it was um, or what it could ever be. Um, thinking of the ways that like ephemerality seemed kind of built into its DNA um, and uh, there wasn't an obvious way beyond that, given that it didn't spark, you know, the full revolution. Um, and that doesn't make it it less of an important intervention or less of an important set of direct actions at the time, but it's obviously worth thinking about, like, what does it mean for something to continue and spread and flourish whilst not falling into kind of the most traditional political forms or the most constrained political forms of the now. Um, but then also being like, oh, okay, well, like, why wasn't this a movement? Is that necessarily a bad thing? Perhaps not. But were we somewhat um, utopian, not necessarily a bad thing, but, um, you know, uh, were we sort of uh, a little bit blinders on not thinking fully enough, for example, in the lead up to May Day 2012, when we were like, general strike, general strike, putting loads of posters about how May the 1st, 2012, after the Occupy encampments had largely been um, decimated by cops, um, not sure where we were going to take all this, this energy and this desire and this, uh, you know, communality and being together and, and connections. And there was like, oh, we'll do a general strike on May 1st, 2012. But there was absolutely no organizing in play. Hey, it was worth a try. All right. It was totally worth a try, but I think it's worth something it's worth learning from. Right. Yeah. Like, don't, uh, don't try it. <laughs> it doesn't well, work. Don't just say don't yeah. just say general strike and put out posters and make cool films and be like general strike. Um that doesn't mean you have to collapse into the most um kind of tried and tested major union first without thinking about precarious laborers and ununionized laborers and wildcat strikes, but I think at the time you know, there was genuine excitement about this general strike, but like, what were we talking about? Well, I think the logic then, of it was that, and this this plays into the question of like, was it a movement, was it a moment, is that for a while, the occupations were spreading and uh, like uh, learning from each other and uh, giving each other tactics and like the rhetoric of it was evolving because initially it was very pro-cop. It was like, the cops are on our side. They have to, we have to get them on our side. Their workers do, whatever. By the end of it, they realized that the police were very brutally against what they were doing. And so that was, that's one example of how things were, were radicalizing in these camps. And when it came to an end, people were so upset. And, you know, the really the, the public seemed to be on the side of Occupy more than anything, that there was an idea that what Occupy called for would gain steam the same way this little call to occupy uh in it, wall street became this nat nationwide movement so they thought if occupy itself could just call for a general strike maybe it would actually happen and uh you know it's it's important to learn from the fact that it didn't that people weren't willing to in mass not go to work and protest on on may day that year 
And I yeah. think that's that at that moment, I think everybody understood that Occupy was a movement or a moment that passed and it was over now. And from that point I mean, on, so anyone was, who yeah. said they were part of the Occupy movement was just a wingnut. And yeah, and it became this, yeah, and it became this kind of like, I think kind of useful, if not for those dreamers among us, um, a disappointing one, but as you say, like a necessary learning thing of like, oh, these were the limitations of what we thought. And yes, we would have maybe thought there were limitations on even Occupy taking off. But again, like the work of reflecting on these things isn't to say, oh, I can actually pick apart the exact causal route that meant Occupy did take off, but Occupy's general strike didn't. But yet, like, we can look at the reasons why taking space, holding space, uh, creating small pockets of direct democracy and militancy then did not also translate to a vast, enacted, anti-work, anti-capitalist general strike. And I think that just interestingly and necessarily speaks to the limitations of what we were doing, but that's okay, right? Like, I don't think that means like, oh, it was a failure. It just means like reckoning with, you know, what we thought we were doing and, and what the, the scope of that really was and who maybe we weren't aware of, who was not as aware of what we were doing and, and how does it, what does it look like to expand that? And it's obviously just a far more difficult task. I mean, one of the most extraordinarily difficult tasks to enact a general strike um, than we had really taken account of, which, yeah, I can get a little bit embarrassed about, I have to say. Well, I hey, know. we learned that lesson 10 years ago and there are media figures who still haven't learned that lesson today. So let's not be too hard on ourselves. Oh, yeah. But I think it's OK to be like. Yeah. And I I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but I've I've had like um, oscillations over the last 10 years of being like, oh, no, like, what were we doing? Like, oh, it was amazing. But like, look at these huge gaping, like epistemological holes and like, you know, the whiteness of it failing to put. Um, you know, there was a, a, you know, as Andy was saying, like a, a deep anti-cop um, sentiment that developed even within those people who were like, but cops are workers at the um, outset. But, um, you know, we weren't, we were talking, we were the largest anti-capitalist movement in such a long time. I mean, you know, anti-globalization movement, sure, but in its specific form, it was historic but we weren't talking about racial capitalism and that's kind of yeah I am a bit embarrassed about that I, I, I wanted to ask you about that because you know there were certainly movements that came after like Black Lives Matter and uh the George Floyd uprising of last summer which really combined occupation and abolitionist politics in a way that um I haven't seen before um like what what was going on with why wasn't why weren't racial politics a bigger part of this movement, considering that, you know, it's such a big part of capitalist social relations in general in this country, but also, you know, the subprime mortgage crisis in particular, which was a ginormous hit disproportionately to black wealth. So uh, I'm just wondering why you think that wasn't a more central part and maybe how Occupy developed, echoed within movements that came after 
Well, you know, it's interesting and and it's tricky, but I think, you know, the 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 simplest answer is that it was too white. Um, it was too many white people and um who didn't have an understanding of of that as problem being as problematic as it was. And um for a for a collectivity, a spread of collectivities that was uh defining itself against representation, nonetheless representing an anti-capitalism that that failed um that that sort of pretended to represent the anti-capitalism that was necessary but actually indeed missed a fucking huge trick as in let's talk about the materiality of race within capitalism um i can't necessarily say like what exact moves we should have done differently but it was definitely there was a kind of white exclusivity in the movement and that's a problem um but i think how it fed into um you know black liberation movements in the last 10 years i would say not, not a huge amount i don't think a lot of the um rebels on the street in ferguson and baltimore and um the uprisings in 2020 were like oh i remember this from occupy even though many of us were, were on the streets that way we were not um you know this was a black led movement this and and i would not say there were enough, um, you know, black proletarians in Occupy to account for this being a kind of direct legacy. Obviously, the the Black Lives Matter and Black Liberation uprisings uh, call upon uh, a longer legacy that maybe, and I, I don't want to speak for everyone in Occupy. I just mean that, like, the experience I had maybe were not um, paying enough credence and care to. Um, but I think what the what we what what you know, the George Floyd uprisings and Occupy have in common, for example, are both um, rupturous mass examples of uh, direct action and intervention in daily life that don't, in fact, uh, translate smoothly into legislative efforts, but are no less crucial nonetheless. And I think that's a, a kind of shared quality, even if I wouldn't, but I wouldn't say that that was a quality that Occupy displayed that then most people on the streets um, for abolition and black liberation were like, yeah, remember Occupy. I think that would be a historical. Yeah. So, yeah, it's important to know our history, folks, because, um, you know, it would be easy to say if all you know about is Occupy Wall Street. Oh, when they did occupation at Standing Rock or when they did it at um, Abolition Square, they must have got that. They must have got that from Occupy. Um, but I don't think there's like a one to one correspondence necessarily, although it is very cool to see people occupying shit to this very day. Oh, because because the because the, the tactic is crucial, right? The, those kind of like riot strike occupy interventions are just crucial as tactics um but yeah so i i feel like yes if you just looked at a timeline and we're just like reading your history as that you could be like occupy ferguson standing rock but that suggests there's a kind of uh top-down leadership that was taking people through all these things and that's not true there are different legacies um and different struggles involved even though deeply interconnected struggles um involved in all those movements but obviously i think what's crucial is that um 
you know, there a lot, a lot of, in fact, most of the people I know who were involved in Occupy did also join and put their bodies on the line, you know, in Indigenous-led struggle, in Black-led struggle since. Um, and that's great to see. Um, Gabriel Winnen wrote an essay, which I, you know, have some disagreements with, but I think highlights um, this, this kind of interesting disjuncture between like, and you could call them like the two strains since Occupy, but that would suggest that like the more radical strain directly led in to Black Lives Matter. And I'm not sure that's historically the case, but the, the, um, the ways in which you then have these kind of evolutions into formal politics and electoral politics and the building of that. And then uh, the kind of inability to then have a, a kind of joining and a, a shared you know, revolutionary space with pol the politics of the street and uprisings. Um, and, you know, like uh, people might disagree with me on this point and I'm open to the disagreement. Like, it's not like I was all around the country and knew everything. Of course not, not even New York. But I did feel like the DSA didn't really have like a space or an answer to the uprisings. Like it was like, oh, we were we were campaigning. Yeah, that's absolutely true. As someone who was in DSA at the time and still is. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I don't, I don't, I can't draw some grand conclusion um, for that, but I think it's, it's one of those tensions that we shouldn't ignore. And I think thinking about the Occupy moment is a way in which we can also address those tensions. Like the fact that the narrative that seems to have won out was like people for Bernie, Bernie, DSA, um, and then kind of, you know, erasing some of the more militant aspects um, and the direct action aspects and the riotous aspects um, then also means that the people who are very pleased for the progression and for, for very decent reasons um, into DSA candidates, uh, shifting the Overton window, all these things um, might then find themselves completely bewildered and surprised with actual rebellion um, if they were more attentive to their supposed legacy within Occupy, they might be like, oh, no, there are rebellions and interventions that aren't just about translating smoothly into um, a better electoral politic. Yeah. And I feel like on some level, DSA is making some effort to synthesize all these things in a way that doesn't always make sense. Like, I think probably i don't know if we're in the majority at this point but there's certainly more straight up anarchists and communists in dsa than there ever have been in the past and i think the structure really reminds me a lot of occupy like you know for for better or for worse it's you know quote unquote rhizomatic it's sprawling it's decentralized and people just kind of work on whatever they feel like working on because it's all volunteers. So like, what's anybody going to do? Like, yeah, there yeah. can be delegates, there can be representatives who are like, these are our priorities. But at the end of the day, um, our priorities are whatever people feel like doing. And, and that's, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. Also, like a lot of DSA members did participate as individuals in the uprising of last summer, sure. uh, despite the organization being completely on the back foot so again there's like a lot of contradictions as there would be at such a weird chaotic time in history and in the history of the left 
Totally. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I should, I should qualify that. I don't mean to say that people who are like active DSA members one on the streets and supporting, uh, and, you know, participating and playing, uh, you know, that role in, in the uprisings like that, that, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to make the mistake of being like, well, the DSA statement speaks for every member. Um, and yeah, and I think it's also continues to be an interesting conversation about, um, did Occupy, was Occupy able to be what Occupy was in its best extents because it sort of functioned as an umbrella, you know, like we were talking, you were saying like, oh, it seemed like a very like kind of open and generous space to enter into. And then people kind of figured out their politics within it. And, um, and they were, you know, often like radical and militant. And then some people went off and just wanted to talk about, um, you know, the very specifics of legislation and finance capital. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I don't want to reject the fact that the DSA being the biggest game in town can't function as an umbrella that could then be non-electoral once people find each other. But I think it's, it's harder for it to emerge that way or to take hold that way, given what it's intents are and that there is some sort of organizational structure that isn't bent towards that. But, you know, any space that people find each other and start making interventions because things are fucked up is great. I just wouldn't want it to be entirely eaten up on campaigns, which is not to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not as um, much of a purist as I was 10 years ago. Like, you know, maybe that makes me like less revolutionary. I don't think so, but like, you know, I'm, I'm like, cool good like i'm really glad there are better tenants laws in new york state because Jamie, i told you we should have had the peanut butter guy on <laughs> yeah he's still I'm pure sorry. i'm not the peanut butter guy but the peanut butter guy was wow. also like details i don't know Andy. i'm curious your thoughts about this like 10 years hence well i i think that there are these like uh moments of struggle that kind of come out of nowhere and people like look at the last one and say well that that was a waste of time it'll never happen again and then the new one comes and everyone like drops what they're doing and goes for it and each one is more intense and each one is novel so yeah anti-globe that the summit hopping kind of culture very lifestyleist into occupy which really i think brings this economic insight to the table responding to the financial crisis, coming from the student movement, the occupations of schools. Then, you know, to Black Lives Matter in 2015, I agree it's a kind of a tenuous link, but I think a lot of the tactical rationale of more assertive protesting and taking a public space was there, especially in, in Ferguson and in Baltimore. Uh, although you could say that that's totally separated from that lineage, that that's probably a fair argument. But then going into the George Floyd uprising, where you see that picking up right where BLM left off um, and, and reaching a new height. And so I think we'll be seeing these these things kind of returning, even if you don't expect it to, sort of where the last one left off. And I think where we're headed to, Occupy still in some ways pointed the way, which was that we need to take back the city. We have to take back infrastructure and something that they could never get off the ground in New York. And I think they had a little bit more success with it in Oakland was that when 
there would be attempts to make an indoor occupation of like Charas, which was this school that was abandoned in the Lower East Side, or uh, the new school had an occupation, or buildings in Brooklyn. Um, people didn't really want to squat and take over buildings um, so much. People were more right. into this, like, let's go outside and, like, have a picnic kind of atmosphere that Zuccotti represented. And we still haven't really got to the point when people are ready to take over a school or a hospital and just run it themselves, uh, which was possible in the past, in the 60s, still possible in other countries. But I don't think people are really at the point where they're they're ready to, like, give up their, like, quit their job, give up their lifestyle uh, for the sake of of changing the way the world works. I think that's where we're headed, though. Yeah, and I also say, like, you know, and I remember this at the time when, you know, you'd have, um, you know, because there was, like, people would kind of travel around the country to different uh, occupations during Occupy, and you'd get the kind of the brash kids from Oakland being like, why is not everything on fire? And I was like, behold the NYPD, the largest army <laughs> in standing army in the country, like, um, which is, you know, maybe an excuse, but it's it's dead real too. Um, and like, you know, efforts that were made to take homes and stuff were shut down and uh, forced out in a way that, um, you know, was incredibly difficult. And you saw that also before Occupy, there was a, a kind of attempt at revising, reviving squatters movements from the nineties, but without paying attention to the enough, perhaps, I mean, worth trying anyway, but the um, attention to the context that these were not abandoned places, they were warehoused. Um, and so reckoning with different forms of power is, is tricky in different sites. And one thing that I think speaks to both the like exciting aspect of Occupy that was internationalist that um, did see itself not just about Wall Street, but in kind of complicity and, and solidarity with um, the Arab Spring, um, you know, not yet a revolution overturned and the square movements in Europe. Um, but maybe the, with the excitement of that, failing to understand in the kind of powers we were dealing with locally, and the specific histories of indigenous dispossession, the specific histories of um, anti-black racism in the US, um, you know, all, all things that I think doesn't mean that like the excitement and the energy around Occupy was, was therefore bad, but just like things worth thinking about in retrospect. Um, and and yeah, and so I, I, I don't know, it was tricky, but you do definitely see um, you know, crucial direct actions that are actually direct actions when you have unhoused mothers taking homes in Oakland and then holding them, and then those being transferred to uh, community land trusts, you know, compromised often, but still these like, you know, we're taking this, this abandoned house, uh, we're taking this, you know, city overseen empty building and we're, we're, we're living in it. Um, and re recognizing that like, oh no, that's what I mean by direct action is super crucial. Um, and then also realizing that like the, the beauty of that and the importance of that is differently difficult in different cityscapes and different areas, especially like, and you know, never underestimating the, the vast power of the NYPD. All right. So what we got to do then, I think, is we got to get all the anti-capitalists listening to come to New York 
all at the same time. And you know what? Maybe we don't have enough uh, anarchists and communists to take over the whole country that way. But I feel like a city, eh, just tonight, just throwing it out there. Yeah. Well, maybe it's, you know, I wouldn't want to be like, hey, guys, <laughs> come to our like horribly pleased um, stretch of country. Um, like, I think it's awesome when people are finding the apertures possible in the locales they live in. Yeah, that that too. You know, we can spitball some ideas after the show. Um, <laughs> well, I, I think like, uh, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't add that as as uh, large and as well armed as the police were, and as uh, you know, as people felt, uh, as much as people at, during Occupy and and since felt powerless confronting them, um, it was never really tried what happened last spring, which was actually just fighting them. And yeah, when you yeah. get enough people to like really to are really pissed off enough to fight them the the game kind of changes they they fall back a lot quicker than everybody expected and uh basically the city was just uh kind of up for grabs for about a weekend and obviously there are a lot of specific reasons for that um the pandemic was a big part of it but also those weren't like a lot of people who were willing to fight back were not let's say the the anti-capitalists that were inviting to take over the city so the the people most ready and willing to fight are not necessarily uh, the leftists. Yeah, and I also think um, you know those the when you see these moments like like in that kind of incredible weekend in New York in early June, twenty twenty of people seeing an aperture and jumping on it as a space for direct action for example looting and people are like this was organized looting i was like amazing what an amazing <laughs> taking advantage of an aperture um and and you know again that's that's hard to necessarily like predict or fully movement organized towards but should always be supported in uh every way possible um and so yeah i do i do think there is um you know to circle back on, on how we began this conversation, um, that necessary um, reflection, awareness of flaws, faults, um, over presumption, over excitement at certain points to the um, detriment of, of maybe some more uh, other important uh, structural considerations. But at the same time, like, you know, not presuming that, that these things aren't possible and that they deserve supporting fully and being you know, engaged planning, but also being ready to be excited and support. Um, and yeah, that was, that was, that was that. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned occupying housing in Oakland. And I, I really feel like that might be the next step because we are facing a housing crisis of unprecedented proportions. Uh, the eviction moratorium uh, I guess they extended it for now, but eventually it's going to end. And a lot of people are going to be out on the streets. And uh, I have to wonder if people are just going to take that or if it's going to become a new wave of occupations and a new kind of occupation. Yeah. And I think it's one of those, like, just have to wonder, but also, yeah, I think there are very cool tenants rights groups that with the kind of um, obvious pressures of, um, the pandemic and then uh, eviction moratoria coming to an end and then being extended that like that kind of organizing for doing eviction defense trainings, doing 
community support, doing that kind of radical action of like, fuck, no, not that, um, is at play. And I think that is a super important site of, of struggle right now. Um, and even if what that might exactly look like in Oakland compared to New York is different, you're definitely seeing like serious eviction defenses in New York, eviction defense trainings, um, and a kind of awareness that like these are the kind of moves that will be necessary to make and that we can't just rely on the transition from eviction moratoria to getting uh, ERAP assistance, rental assistance out there. It's just not going to happen. And I think that, uh, you know, I, I've written about it a little bit, but um, some of the kind of more inspiring success stories in other parts of the country of people taking homes and holding homes, um, like the Moms for Housing. Um, it might look a little different in New York, but this idea of like, oh, hell no, we're going to like together take homes and keep people in their homes is definitely like active and people aren't just waiting for the eviction moratoria to end. Yeah. Yeah. Not to mention uh, housing is such an important, like such a central part of our financialized economy. At this point in time, I think it's going to uh, it's going to make the contradictions very clear to a lot of people in a way that maybe they weren't before. And it, it just seems like a really important um, fulcrum for a lot of things to be arrayed around. Um, but, yeah, I, I keep thinking, like, how do we build these into lasting institutions? How do we carry a movement from moment to moment um, so that, you know, maybe we're seeing some natural progression, but I think it would be better if we could figure out like some kind of balance, right. Between total spontaneity, which I think is mostly a fantasy. There's always some organizing that goes into stuff. Right. right. And this, you know, really limiting kind of, uh, Dem scent or whatever that some people want to impose on everything. Um, like how, how do we do that? How, how does Occupy help us kind of think through that both in positive and negative terms? Like where do we, where do we go from here? Um, so one, fuck if I know. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, two, um, I think a couple, a couple of things and like kind of calling upon what we've been discussing is um, not presuming that something that looks a little bit like something we've done before that maybe didn't work out is therefore bullshit, like leaving room to be um, collective, knowing each other, you know, organizing and in community for want of a less um, overused term um, such that we can take advantage of apertures um, and, uh, and by the same token, learning from historic limitations, especially as, um, you know, white anti-capitalists, white anarcho-communists, um, you know, considering our own limitations and, uh, necessarily so, um, but yeah. And then also just being like, you know, we've talked about a whole bunch of cool shit that's been happening recently. Um, you know, even if it's not at the scale of Occupy that people are like, this is a movement, but, um, you know, finding out about those things, supporting them, thinking about, 
uh, you know, groups that, you know, maybe had the title mutual aid, but one, what were, what were the limitations that meant that it didn't expand to a mutual aid network? I do. I've been um, volunteering with Southern Solidarity, which was um, founded in New Orleans and has really become a full mutual aid network with like the unhoused recipients of the care being far more involved in the organizing of, of how that kind of group um, of mutual support goes forward. And it's got a, a New York chapter, which, which I think is absolutely awesome and is working towards thinking about um, and, and doing work towards like, you know, these, these efforts that could otherwise look like charity also being involved in spreading and sharing political information and allowing people to tell us, you know, especially like formerly incarcerated unhoused people, um, tell us what's going on and, and that to be a, a more mutual and sustainable thing, even if it's not massive, like a big mutual aid so-called mutual aid group that's um you know calling upon every single person who's got free time and the desire and the the willingness which a again is great to do grocery deliveries now that that aspect of the pandemic might be slightly not so much the like most in need thing moving that into um ways to stay in contact and in resistance together but you know, these are just observations and my thoughts having the experiences I've had. There is a, like, I, I often just feel like, fuck if I know. Like, I'm more invested in being like, oh, seems like some people are doing cool shit. I would like to support the cool shit. I mean, yeah, that's kind of the point of this show, basically. We're like, yeah. who's doing cool shit? Let's talk about it. So, yeah, shout out to Southern Solidarity. <laughs> nice. Um well, is there anything else you want to plug before we go? No, just this show is good. <laughs> it's nice to chat with you guys. Yeah, plug Aww. the Antifada for us. It's like when you listen to the radio, it's like, yo, uh, I'm Pete Diddy. You're listening to Hot 97. <laughs> Natasha, what's your favorite radio station? It's the Antifada podcast radio station. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Awesome.
falls down. It falls down. This is what we are doing here. This is what we are doing here. We are telling the guys there on Wall Street. We are telling the guys there on Wall Street. Democracy and capitalism is over. 